Welcome to Roots and Ruminants, your podcast for creative and innovative use of farm, pasture, and rangeland. We're going back to the basics of raising and grazing livestock, growing your own forage, and practical land use. Well, welcome to this joint episode of Working Cows Podcast and Roots and Ruminants. Uh, Clay Conry. Uh, Clay, did I hear recently that your podcast has recently gotten one million downloads? Yeah, since January, uh, July of 2018, that's that's how far back the stats go. I started in November of 2017, but uh, since July of 2018, we I've got it. I've got the hard data <laughs> on on that's a million awesome. downloads, uh, you know, from that time. So, uh, two two hundred and whatever episodes. Yeah, so. That's, that's fantastic. Obviously, Justin Frickty is here joining me as well. Uh, looking forward to the conversation in which we're going to highlight uh, some things that are going on, some things that are looking ahead and uh, getting ready to start a brand year, brand new year off in 2022. So we are joining from Eastern South Dakota. Clay, you're joining from Western South Dakota. We've got the, the state covered uh, from a, as far as the news. What's the weather out there like today? Oh, beautiful, beautiful day, uh, sunshine and uh, calm, you know, no wind and, and above, not not quite above freezing, but above zero. So, you know, all those things considered, it's a win as far as Western South Dakota days in December can go. It's been pleasant here as well. I, I would say this has been one of the, the more favorable falls for, you know, crop residue and, and fall grazing that we've had in a long time. Yeah. That's what we were just talking about. Uh, Jared and I were visiting about uh, still haven't fed the cows, and we're on December twenty second, and uh, it doesn't look like they're going to be pulled off anytime soon. It's been absolutely fantastic. The other thing I've noticed in, in, in comparison to other years, the um, the um, amount of protein that they're not consuming. Oh yeah, you know what I mean. Like usually, I'm on. I don't know. You're starting to roll through the lick tubs and. They're getting antsy and pacing the fence and scrounging for any blade of grass. That's, and that's just they're they're much more content this year. So, I don't know if there's a little bit more value left in some of the corn stalks or, or what the case is, but they're definitely they're doing really good. You were in that lower yield environment or yield limited environment that's from true. moisture. Yep, lower yield, better quality. Yeah, hmm. yeah. So it's some quality. And left is in is that is that uh, increased quality due to lower yield driven uh, by uh, more more kernels laying on the ground, or is it just the stock? There's more nutrients left in the stock that uh, that they can get after. Well, by forage analysis, there should be more protein in the in the fodder of the plant mm-hmm. if it's pushed less yield. Sure, All right. Makes, yep. And then also, it. like I said too, you'll have those uh, those small. Uh, regressed ears that'll go right through the slip plates. You That's know, true. poor yielding corn does have that yep. more loss because it's not really meant to go through the combine that well. So yep. yeah, a little bit of both. Huh? And some of the stock strength issues probably led to more down corn and some cows are still searching for kernels and you know, that's keeping them a little content. Too. Right. Did you guys have any of that wind that laid a bunch of corn down? I, I don't, was that more Iowa or, or did that happen as far north that as did, you that hit That hit us. Yeah. Yeah. That hit Eastern South Dakota pretty hard. Us too. And so a lot of that, spread. a lot of that, they were harvesting corn real slow from what I was seeing, uh, yeah. having to drive through it real slow. And I imagine it's still less efficient, even though you're driving slower. Oh, for sure. Right. Right. It was so a bit more of a battle. But, but luckily it was overall a pretty good fall. And mm, good, 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 good uh, crop residue grazing opportunities, as you said, probably connected to that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Perfect. Yep. yep. The lack of uh, summer forage has been made up here in the fall. You know, we talked about that. I think we, well, I remember when we were sitting down with Jim Falstick in October and, and he, you know, commented about how much pastures regrew as soon as we started getting moisture in the fall there. And, and that was true. And then now we've had this awesome fall for, you know, corn stock and stover grazing. It's just, yeah. seems like, you know, the law of averages does always come back and, and, and equal out when it's all said and done, when we look back at a year. And I think we've made that point here now as, as we wrap up the year of 21. What are things out there uh, look like, Clay? Been an open winter so far. Um, you know, a lot of same thing. Not much forage grew. I mean, uh, I think, you know, if you can judge a cow's performance uh, based on, on cow pies and patties and those kinds of things, uh, my cows stayed pretty, pretty healthy and, and doing pretty, performing pretty well. Um, 
through November, but that was due to two inches of rain that we got in October. And that was Mm -hmm. the, I think that was our biggest single rainfall event of the year, uh, for us. And actually, um, probably the biggest single rainfall event dating back to like June of last year, June of 2020. So we were, we would have been in a drought, uh, in 2020 if it hadn't been for 2019, it would have felt like a drought, I guess I should say. We had 40 inches of rain in 2019 when we usually get 15. And yep. we we had, uh, then we had, I think I measured nine and a half inches of, of rain in 2020. And uh, I measured seven and a half in 2020 before October. So actually that October rain put us over, over last year's total rainfall too. So, but still little more than half. So um, not much forage grew this summer. Uh, like you said, though, the fall uh, moisture did, I think, help some people make up for that, but there's still quite a bit of, of supplement going on. And I don't know that it's much ahead of what it would have been last year. See a lot of cake trucks driving around, not seeing a whole oh, yeah. lot of bales getting rolled out yet. Uh, but I, I really, I think probably more people would have been rolling out bales now if it hadn't been for that that December rainfall, uh, or that October, sorry, October rainfall, uh, where we actually grew some green grass and, and had, had some green grass for those girls to chase, uh, out there. So made a difference. That's a, that's a real late flush of grass. That's mm-hmm. real late. Mm-hmm. What, yeah, uh, it was, it was honestly the most green grass I saw after, after June. Uh, I'm, and I'm not kidding. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, in October, it was a tough year. Yeah. So what what's the stocking situation? I know that you go north and west to you, it gets even worse. You know, yep. where would you say the average person in northwest South Dakota and then even getting further worse, my understanding would be central or eastern Montana, you know, what percent stocked are people on, on mature cows and, and where are they gonna end the spring at? Sure. You know, I've I've heard I've heard quite a few reports of breed ups in the in the mid to high seventies, low eighties. Um, so I I think, yeah. So, I mean, that hurts. Um, so, and I think a lot of those went as cull cows, um, you know, some of the guys that maybe traditionally would have held them over and fed them even into the first of the year, uh, just to get past some of that big cull cow flush and, and the, and the tough market to sell those cull cows in, in November, uh, in December, you know, I think some of them went early this year. And so they, there was just, I think that probably as much as anything, um, it has affected the stocking rate and, and people, people backing have been able to back down by that and not had to sell as many bread cows as they might have had to, if they had a, uh, you know, a, a low nineties to, to mid nineties breed up, you know, they might've been selling more bred cows than they were, uh, than they did this year. So I, I think that maybe is playing a, a, a role in the stocking situation. Um, there are still bred cows going, but, um, I would say, um, the majority of them have been, uh, open and moved cold okay. cows. Yep. I, and I wish they were bringing a little bit more money. Every time I see, uh, you know, kind of sale barn reports on those, those middle to broken, you know, solid to broken mouth cows, Boy, they're just they're just a heck of a value if someone can yeah. find a home for them. Yeah, and the, they do they go east? Does some of them end up in your country on on in a feedlot getting juicy and then go to a a killer processing uh, the, the facility? Opens for sure. The, the opens for sure. I mean these these bread ones. Uh, oh, sure, like yeah. I said, there's there's a typically a lot of. I'd say there's a, a big flex in the James River Valley and in, in eastern South Dakota in the Coteau where people will, you know, kind of swell up and, you know, take on a couple hundred here and there uh, if they can. Uh, but again, it's it's usually done more so when things are a little bit tough. When there's a really good year um, from crop price standpoint in these mixed operations, it, it probably makes it a little bit harder to want to work your tail off, you know, having a 300 extra cows of unknown disposition history. <laughs> so, I mean... Uh, and you don't blame people, right? Yeah. So uh, there, there typically is that that kind of flex there in this part of the country, but they don't seem to be having to fight over them because they're, like I said, solid broken mouth cows aren't bringing much. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and and which is nuts. I mean that that you know trend line. I would say, boy, if you can keep this thing going, it's a uh, in less than a year you're guaranteed to probably have a thousand dollar marketable calf out of that cow. Uh, calf's already there. It just, it just isn't seeming to bring any premium in the market. 
those cows would sell pretty similar to as if they were if they were open. Right. Yeah. That that uh, um, you know you got a lot of that winter bill you know into her, but there's still quite a bit to come. You know, and 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 in this yeah. part of the region, there isn't going to be a lot of winter grazing done. Um, so it's going to be that that's going to be tough. All, all my cows went to to Nebraska. Um, and I only, okay. I only had seven of them, you know, but we were, we were just kind of getting started out, um, yep. when we ended up transition over here and I've always had a, a job, um, I guess you could say in town, although where I'm sitting right now, I'm 35 miles from a gas station. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> a off ranch job, I suppose right. is, is what it is, but, uh, I've always had a job in town. So I've gotten, you know, had, had just building up a cow herd and, and, and some of those things. And, uh, we've still got the calves at the place they're going to sell in February, but, um, yeah, it, they, the cows all went to Nebraska here a couple of weeks ago. So, um, just, and I, I've heard a lot of people doing that. Um, and I, actually a lot of them I think are really enjoying it. So I don't know how much of a, a, a battle there will be for corn stalks coming up in, in Nebraska and in, uh, you know, kind of the northern edge and around to the eastern edge of the sand hills where there gets to be quite a bit more uh, corn uh, put up in that part of the world. I don't know how much these guys are going to affect the the battle for corn stalks in that part of the world, but I, I see quite a few of them sending cows to corn stalks this year. That ha- is the first time they've ever done that, but okay. they're kind of enjoying it because, you know, not having cows around that you have to, you know, feed and keep water open for uh, in the winter is is a can be a nice change for some of them. Yeah, big time. Yeah, it doesn't seem to, uh, um, I would say every year, the only time corn stock bales ever get a little uh, competitive around here is when, uh, you know, as far as in the bale form, I know you're talking about grazing acres in Nebraska, but Justin was just talking about, what'd you get uh, quoted for, for delivered corn stock bales at your place, Justin? I'd gotten some laid in for 40 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. 40 bucks, 40 bucks a bale. What are they weighing? Oh, Eight, they're probably, nine. that's what I was going to say, maybe not nine and a half. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're yeah. normal big round bales, but, um, but it's pretty nice. And the fact that you get them delivered in and it's like, yeah, it's, there's, there's a pretty good abundance. We, we have, yeah, yeah, right. It's a good yeah. year for buying corn stock bales. Yeah. We had kind of two different flushes where, you know, guys could, throughout the season, there was that, that early, Corn stock balance right after the combine was rolling, guys were getting a lot made, and then we we got some rain, mm-hmm. you know, through much much of the upper Midwest, and then we dried back out, and guys got back out and made a lot of corn stock bales. Then you yeah. know when people were finished up combining, so there's there's a lot of corn stock bales around. Yeah, what's a but that makes a big big difference on you know when we talk about like our our on farm forage supplies and and then just the you know, the, the feed market in general and how big of a factor corn stock bales really play. It's huge. It's yeah. absolutely huge just because they, I mean, they're, they're, they're being ground and putting into rations for everything now. I mean, it's not just a, just a stock cow feed. It's, it's the feedlots. You see some dairies grinding corn stock bales now to use as, as a filler. I mean, it, so it, it, it is, it's a big, big component of the entire feed supplies that we're supposed to put up in the united states so. displace a lot of uh demand for for straw obviously yeah. for oat and wheat straw yeah. you know, right it's kind of taken that market really mm-hmm. yeah one of the one of the guys one of the guys actually on the board of the church where i serve as pastor was saying uh that he'd gotten some corn stalks and he'd gotten them tested and and uh talked to the guy uh that that was reading the test for him and he said the guy said usually i i say that these these that corn stock bales are better than straw uh, but not by much. And he said, but you happen to have gotten your hands on the worst corn stock bales I've ever seen. So they are not better <laughs> than straw. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, anyway, they don't keep very long. They do that. not keep. They do not keep. No. They're, uh, they're, you want to the turn them around. Yeah. You don't want to store them around a long time. Mm, sure. mm. Interesting. Uh, oh, then the, the corn inside of there makes them a, a, a large attraction for raccoons and things like that. They want to start <laughs> digging in and finding those goodies. So if you got somebody that's running anyway. a trap line, they'll be happy. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's what, what what's happened is, is the wheat it's the wheat belt, right? This this eastern wheat market in this part of the world has been moved west to where there's a line where no one really wants to take the straw anymore, right? Everyone wants the straw for residue, for cover, for mm-hmm. organic yep. matter, for soil health, and and then you know the people that to the east with the thick heavy topsoil are are not planting small grain anymore. So there's a right. there's a lot more limited straw window. So yeah. you kind of needed to displace that. 
That's true. What have you guys seen in a year like this where uh, there were some pretty sorry, sorry to say it that way, but pretty sorry wheat crops? Um, and I, I actually messaged a guy, and I'm pretty sure we were on the same page, and I was asking for a wheat bale, like a, a bale that they didn't combine it, but they put it into a bale with the wheat, you know, with the head mm-hmm. still on it. And he yeah. said, we didn't want to do that. We, did, we couldn't sacrifice the residue. So did they even just leave some of that standing? And maybe, I don't know if they grazed it or what, but did, did, some, did you see some of that or hear of some of that happening? I, I did see some of that kind of, you know, Potter County and North there. You saw some of that where they just didn't even go after it at all, but there was just nothing to go after. It looked like a pretty, you know, in some of those fields. Uh, but a lot of it did get bailed. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember what those prices were at the time. It was kind of, there always gets to be this, these crazy high prices for, for wheat bales. You know, it's seemingly for what you think the value of a wheat bale would be. But those numbers, I don't remember what they were, but they always seem like ridiculous. Yeah. Well, and then there's the concern with the nitrates and everything that you've got to yeah. keep an eye on with those that make them a little bit more challenging to to use as a feed source. Yeah, but I didn't see a lot of them get grazed. If it's boy, if there's, if there's, if they take the water infrastructure out of these these big crop areas, it just mm. you might people haul a little water in the wintertime where you know they're not going through as much water. It's not hot. They don't have calves aside. They're not lactating. But summertime, you know, people don't seem to want to haul water real bad unless they absolutely have to. It takes a lot of time. Uh, you got to be really timely. Got to go through a lot more on a per head basis. Uh, so once that water infrastructure goes. And it's yeah, it changes the that's dynamics it. of grazing. Yeah, and a lot of that is our dry land acres. Do you do you is the, is the lack of water accessibility there? I mean, of course, in the winter it's frozen, but um, would there have been uh, pond options or things like that in that part of the world before uh, all these fields got tiled? Or I, I am I I'll freely admit I've said it a lot of times I'm row crop illiterate so if I'm saying something dumb you can tell me but is that is that part of what's what's been uh, impacting the usage of those uh, acres in off season times? I, I would say tiling really hasn't changed that. I mean those have been shallow you know intermittent pools that weren't very good water for more than about the 15th of June anyway. Uh, so they're so they're not great even in a wet year. Uh, basically. If you're going to create a, a stable, you know, year-round or summer-long, fall-long water source, you're going to have to put it on a moving piece of water, right? It's going to have to be a dammed-up creek like you see and that kind of stuff, a dugout in a creek. If you don't have some water flow coming to that, keeping it freshened up at least intermittently, uh, it just doesn't turn out very good. The ones that are just ponded, uh, they end up in real stale, real quick, really poor water. Sure. So I, I don't know that, and and we're probably talking about a little bit different areas. You know, when when I was thinking these these big areas, uh, yeah, I don't I don't know that tiling has reduced the water source from a livestock grazing standpoint, especially not fall grazing, late summer grazing. Just gotcha. Because no. I mean, really, in in some cases, it's it's helped it. <laughs> you know, he can get get lucky on the right side of some of these tile lines, and it's actually continued. Mm-hmm flow through More some of these flow. shallow creeks sure so that just depends yeah yep. yeah we actually have a lot of restrictions in tiling anymore i mean realistically like it, it's it, it's there's two sides of the coin there's you know yeah there's some real seasonal wetlands that get uh you know maybe drained out but also we're probably making the other ones just a little bit bigger uh the ones that actually can hold water in year round by doing that so it's a it's a give and take, and unless you're willing to leave the farm program or do wetland mitigation or something like that, there's just not a lot of things that you would consider a wetland that are going to get tiled out. Uh, a lot of places where it's black dirt, it looks like it's there's hardly a depression there, and they'll they might call it a wetland. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that's true. Yep. Sure. What have you guys seen as some of the top lessons learned in 2021 uh, as far as some of the producers that you guys are working with? Book your fertilizer early. Uh, I I would say that uh, for me, and this is over the last few years of working with people. Uh, this is summer. This is winter months right now. This is a great time to do this. There's always room to change a plan, but have a plan to start and do the best you can to stick with the plan. And if if there was an opportunity to go reseed something, I mean the normal 
traditional weather patterns that we think we have, like it's kind of early, you know, kind of wet in June. And then if it doesn't rain in June, it's not going to rain at all. Or we don't get rain in July and August prevented a lot of people from taking, you know, in situations where they could have had tremendous regrowth fall grazing opportunities by planting covers into field wheat crops or into harvested wheat crops or into silage acres that came off early this year due to drought. And if you'd have got something in, you'll be flush with Mm -hmm. extremely high quality, high protein grazing, even now. Uh, for for livestock and so from that standpoint it's like well the best time to you know the plant is is as soon as you can and you can't chase rains with a cover or with an alternative forage plan and it, it it wouldn't have worked everywhere but the odds are really favorable that the places that were hit the hardest in the early part of the summer a lot of those recovered late summer fall right I think that is spot on with what what we saw as, you know, I mean, the stakes continued to get higher as we didn't get rain, which made it even more impactful for those that did do something. You just, Jared was right. When you make that plan, yeah, you're going you're gonna to alter from that plan. But actually doing nothing was the worst thing that you could have done this year in most cases. And those that, you know, were able to take some risk by um, planting the cover crop after silage acres, uh, they were rewarded here anyways. I mean, it, it's, it's been phenomenal as far as some of those forage acres that they've gotten. And, and, and pushing the envelope as far as um, um, doing the extra work to fence off that extra quarter of corn stalks now. And, um, you know, those, those little things where it, it took effort and it took risk – those are the times where you were rewarded this year. Yeah. And, you know, I think that those people, you know, would have been rewarded, especially with cattle coming from the West, you know, there, there would have been quite a bit of competition for those acres. I'm, I'm guessing. Um, but oh, yeah. And it always creates, like I said, there's, there's buying opportunities. So it's, there's self-sufficiency, you know, from your herd standpoint, but also the person who, you know, was able to be fortunate to, uh, it could, it, I think this is going to be, a tremendous buying opportunity for anybody that can lay in extra cows and keep keep them for a while today. And I think it's going to be one of the last good, really good buy, buying opportunities for a while. And so if 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 your foresight and your you know aggressiveness and and planning and whatever it was allows you to expand by 10, 20% in a year like this when everybody else is trying to contract by that amount, or from like your comments, forced to from extremely you know high open rates from on on breed up then it's great. And it might not happen every year, but it might be a once in a decade opportunity. Yeah. Well, and and back to what you said earlier, Jared, um, you know, and I'm sure you guys have heard this quote before from Dwight Eisenhower. He said, in preparing for battle, I've always found that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a great way to put it. Like uh, I've had these conversations with my dad plenty of times. He's like, well, how do you plan when there's so much uncertainties? He's like, well, but what happens is, is if you don't, if you don't have a plan at all, you'll, you'll just sit and stew and then you'll be able to really effectively after the fact, decide what you should have done a month before, <laughs> but just not valuable. Yeah. So yep. there's a, there's a point to digress and, and review and there's a point to, you know, here's how and when we pull the trigger to, to move ahead. Yeah. And in the ranching for profit world, they use the illustration of a, of a car. Uh, the windshield is whatever, however many times bigger than the rear view mirrors and the side view mirrors combined. And they say you should spend that amount of time looking forward in your business and the, and the amount of time equivalent to the rear view mirrors and the side view mirrors looking backward in your business. And, Mm -hmm. and that is, you know, I've, I, I have seen the merits of that way of thinking before. Um, we were talking about weather a little bit. Uh, Don Day, uh, meteorologist, do you guys get exposed to his work at all? He's kind of a Wyoming guy, but... Um, okay. He's no, a, I don't think I'd have. I was just listening to an extended interview with him the other day, and he was talking about... The, he, he called himself an analog um, meteorologist, which means um, he takes into account a lot of the the La Nina, El Nino cycles in the Pacific Ocean, um, and then also the, the the phase of the sun. And he said that 2020 was kind of a triple whammy. 2021 was kind of a, a triple whammy, uh, meaning we were coming off of an incredibly strong uh, La Nina cycle, which produced 2019, which was a very wet year, um, 
very good year for us here in the West, maybe not as good for those in the East. Um, but and then and then on top of that, we were due for our 10 year drought coming off of the 2011, 2012, uh, you know, droughts we had in, in a lot of the West. And, and I'm not sure how far East that went. But then the third part of that triple whammy was that 2021 was also just a solar minimum. And all three of those things combined to make 2021 what it was in the West. And he said uh, he anticipates the spring and summer of 2022 being a lot better because uh, we're going to cycle back off of that solar minimum and the the um, the, the Pacific Ocean is going to be more favorable to a, a better a better year uh, here in in the West and so I think that's that was encouraging news for me. We'll see if it holds. Um, you know, oh yeah, they they can't get a ten day forecast right, so he's you know he's pre- he's predicting <laughs> six months in advance this yeah. uh, this better spring and summer, but. Um, you know, Great. I'll take any encouraging news I can get at this point. <laughs> no, very encouraging. That would be uh, fantastic for, like I said, for folks out your way into the West, farther West to recover. Um, that would be much, much needed, much needed. And and where I was going with that, I forgot about it as I was explaining it, but where I was going with that was back to what you were saying about the opportunity that's going to exist uh, for people who are able to lay in some extra cows at this point. And I think that if we see, and I've talked to people who I trust a lot more than myself, um, I'm just a guy that, I'm just the idiot, as Simon Sinek says, asking asking the dumb question everybody else in the room is wanting to ask. Um, so, but a guy I trust a lot more than myself said, if we get some rain in the West, he wouldn't be su- surprised to see $2,500 to $3,000 bred cows uh, in, the, in, in the coming months. So if you could, if you could buy in some of these short term or not short term, but, but, you know, run an age cows, uh, out of this country that's, that's going, going East and lay them in and then send them back West. You know, that's a pretty, pretty good opportunity if, if his prediction holds. I, yeah, I think that there's a lot of premium built into this thing that's going to hit at some point, and we've certainly been aggressive on cow slaughter, especially in the southeast of the U.S., which I I think that's a region that once they lose their cows, it's going to be hard to come back, right? I mean, there's a yeah. there's a lot of timber, you know, a lot of real small-scale operations. Those could be kind of forever retired cows down out of some of those states. I've seen so, I've seen people in my neighborhood where cows left and I'm not sure they'll come back um you know and I think that mm. they're they're going they they're running cows and sheep and uh the cows left and I'm, I mean it wasn't a small herd of cows 160 or 40 or something like that you know um not insignificant for sure and um they they went to Colorado and um you know I think maybe they'll be custom grazing cows in the growing season and running sheep from here on out. I, I wouldn't be surprised, I guess. Um, but you know, that's huh? a, I don't, not a bad business model. I wouldn't, no. I would say honestly. Um, no, not bad. Uh, the, the, the water situation alone is a lot easier to get a sheep through the winter than it is a cow. <laughs> you know? Yep. I, I'll never forget. Same guy. One day after church, it was snowing during church and he walked out and he said, Oh good. I won't have to water my sheep today. It snowed during <laughs> church. And I mean, we're talking two inches of wet snow right. in the spring and he was, that was going to be great for them. Yeah. So yeah, it can simplify things. What, yeah. what is the persona of the person that picks up those, those cows though? I mean, moving forward, if we're if 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 some of these cattle are leaving the country, and they're not coming back, and that person's retired and moved off, and they don't have the next generation. Where where does ownership of the cows go? I think somebody who's dreadfully understocked after the last two years in the West is the person that's buying them. Somebody mm-hmm. who probably sold early on in the drought and has been sitting on that money for a couple of years, mm-hmm. I think, is okay. probably the person buying those cows. Yep. Um, it's the least fortunate person to have to buy them back. The person who sold them at the cheapest, and the the and that the other side of that question, Justin, is okay. You look at the last cattle cycle when we when we destocked and then we came back and rebounded. We saw tremendous growth in South Dakota from a cow calf side of things. Right, South Dakota was one of the big net you know growers when it or you know the net growth states when it came to that, and. Is that, are we going to be that again or where is it going to go? Like, where's that momentum shift, you know, mm. kind of come back when there is restocking that take place, takes place? Is it going to be, are we going to see a resurgence in the Southeast or are they going to get back to where they were? Or who's going to actually be the states and the regions that grow on a net basis with cattle? Mm-hmm. 
This is what, 20, 2010 through 12, 13, when we started to repop again and get oh, numbers so, back so up. So 15 was the low marks, right? Remember 15 calf, fall of 15 calf prices were okay. sky high through the roof, you know, and everything. So that was, that was the 20, that was the $3,200, you know, yeah, okay. straight yep, yep, Hereford, yep. bred Hereford, yeah, Hereford Fort Pier, sale barn, you know, peak of craziness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> basically mm-hmm. um that i remember that was was 15 16 and then that's when we started to you know get some repop going because of sure. hybrid heifer prices a lot of heifers i remember you know our ai schedule that year you know 15 16 17 was just through the roof okay. because guys were going out and buying two thousand dollar you know heifer calves or eighteen hundred dollar heifer calves banks vaccinated and then then there was a year or two where they sold them for eighteen hundred dollars bread um but that's that was kind of the repopped years but anyway, but the point was, I'm saying it was like South Dakota in that time frame was a was a huge net, you know, grower. Like we we moved up several states in the ranking on as far as cows, you know, in the state rankings. We moved from like number nine to number six, I think. Okay. So I guess the big picture question here that I've got is is cow calf the best thing to be doing in this part of the world, uh, given given our uh, seasonality, and I'm. You know, I'm all for people doing what makes them happy and what they enjoy, but just from a strictly economic perspective, um, and what what our what our country does, uh, just on a seasonal weather basis, you know, is is cow calf um, something that we we should do at the level that we do, or should this be a lot more summer grass country uh, than it is? I guess is something that I've been thinking about a lot, and I guess to to go down the rabbit hole the reason I've been thinking about that, I've just been wondering, you know, like if we were trying to mimic uh, bison herds from before uh, the settling of this part of the world, were they, were they calving out uh, or were they, were they here year round? And if they were here year round, which we kind of know they weren't, were they calving out here or were they maybe calving out somewhere down South and then grazing this direction? Kind of like, uh, some of those places in those mountain ranches in the West, you know, I'm talking about places yeah. like Idaho where summer is, you know, six months long or whatever. You can follow the forage up the hill and be on a really high plane of u- nutrition all the way up the mountain and, and, and getting some of that you know, some of that better animal performance even uh, later into the year than you might expect in those places where it's a lower rainfall environment. But as the snow melts and that green grass comes on, they, those animals perform well. So, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this lately. Is, is this really cow-calf country or should it maybe be more summer yearling country? Well, so the question is, is was, was the permanent ranching establishment the best way to to manage those grass acres or was it a byproduct of the homestead act requiring a permanent residence and improvement mm-hmm. on the property barbed wire fences cutting off the traditional routes mm-hmm. of moving you know summer grass cattle from the south to the north for summer grass and then back south again and before the advent of the interstate highway system and trucks that could really efficiently move cattle mm-hmm. <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. was this a, was it a necessary window Due to those dynamics of why people became permanent ranchers with with cow calf herds that that calved and lived twelve months out of the year in your part of the world, or was it um, a window? I, I'm not suggesting anything. Don't get me wrong, but I, I see where you're going, and it's it's yeah. There's some there's some factors that change that. Yeah, well, absolutely, and and it's just interesting to think about the the effect of those factors on our current situation, and then I think that plays into another discussion of consolidation, and I'm going all the way back to, I think, episode two of Roots and Ruminants here with Luke Perman, where he said that management was the craft beer of the uh, American ranching industry. And and, uh, the way I took that, what I took that to mean was as craft beer grew in popularity in the the late 90s, early 2000s, management is going to be the thing that uh, people are marketing uh, in the future of ranching that there's going to be, I think what I, what I, where I, I, where I see that playing out is that we're going to see continued ranch consolidation. Uh, we're going to see ranches owned by fewer and fewer people getting bigger and bigger. 
and we're going to see a lot of non or uh, non-operator landowners, absentee landowners, whatever you want to call them. And we're going to see people marketing themselves as I'm a guy that can manage this land. I can make it better. I can make, I can attract more wildlife to this land through my management. Um, and, and you can pay me to do that. And I'm going to make this a show place for you. I don't know if you guys see any of those trends, uh, where you're at, but I, I can see that coming and I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. I just think that maybe it's the reality of where we're headed. I, I think it'll keep people, uh, it'll bring some people back to beef and I think it'll keep some people eating beef because of that, you know, that outlet, right. Uh, which is probably true. There's probably a certain number of people that are out drinking craft beers that probably weren't big consumers of Budweiser. They weren't buying 30 packs of Bush Light, you know, before this, right? The, the, you know, they weren't yep. big beer, like consumers of big beer, like quotation mark, big beer companies um, that are drinking craft beer. I think that's maybe true of, uh, we might be able to attack that elusive salmon market, you know, from a consumption standpoint with craft, craft beef. beef. So it, it, it might not have to be one of those either or, or eat your own, you know, mm-hmm. kind of competition schemes. Well, I, I, I think you're spot on with that. And, and that's what we've seen because we've seen it with the craft beer industry, we've seen it with the craft food industry and the foodie market and the foodie waves. McDonald's isn't going away. And and there's going to have to be a beef producer that can scale and work on low margins and produce a massive a product that can be massively produced at low margins. And then there's going to be the producer that's got to have the you know, the, the Wagyu beef that's, you know, served in a high end white tablecloth market and, you know, bringing lots of value, but they're probably going to run, you know, 50 cows, whatever it is, there's plenty of opportunity for however people want to create their product and however they want to market and brand their product. There's going to be an industry that can support it. I wish butcher box. I think that company's doing neat things. And I think, like I said, it is, I think a butcher Brock butcher box subscription as much as you maybe you could argue that you know they're they're pushing for arbitrary things that aren't necessarily scientific maybe some non-gmo or non-hormone you know there's certain things that they're selling that you know maybe they aren't great but they're certainly sellable but i think it'd be awesome if butcher box had a you know certified you know multi-species processor or they supported that in some capacity in a region where they could have people with real small herds come in and process, they wouldn't have to be a 12 month supplier because butcher box is going to give you, it's like fruit of the month. And so mm-hmm. you're going to get your price, you know, your grass fed beef from Perkins County, South Dakota. And that's going to come to you in November. Cause that's when it finishes, right? That's when the process works for it to happen. You don't have to have that 12 month revenue. So I think there's some good opportunity there. There, uh, we were at, uh, uh, the national egg, sustainability conference, I think of what it was called, in Las Vegas about a month ago. And there was a gal, and I can't remember her name. I didn't write this down before this, but uh, what was her name? Anyway, she, uh, her family ranches, and this gal was probably mid-20s, I, was, I would guess, and she gave the most compelling argument for the future of beef production that I've, that I've ever seen. She was beautiful, magnificent at it. I mean, it was, it was just articulate and well-spoken. And she talked about how on their ranch, they had been doing an environmental assessment of all the things that were coexisting with their beef farm, um, with their ranch over, over the last five years, she'd been focused on this. And it was like 512 species of plants, amphibians, fish, insects, butterflies, honeybees, birds, mammals, everything that were listed out that were coexisting with their beef ranch and then offered the alternative of like, you know, and if you prefer to go vegan, I, I can, this is our family's land. Like we will farm it some way or another if we have to. Um, but you will lose 400, you know, 511 of these species primarily, Mm -hmm. um, in every acre that we have to convert away from natural habitat producing beef into cereal production. So, I mean, the future is in your hands. And so, you can have these pictures or you can, you know, we can contribute to more monoculture crops. It was like, oh, it was a gut punch. She did an awesome job. Mm-hmm. She said it way better than I did. <laughs> I'll find her name. She's awesome. I like that trade-off for an argument, though. Like, yeah. You know, if we're going to compare a system. Or yeah. If we like, you bring up. That one. You bring up a conference, and we're, we're I think, approaching conference season. Uh, the South Dakota Soil yeah. Health Coalition conference is coming up here uh, at the 
at, in the middle of the month. And then also uh, you guys will be with us at the South Dakota Farm Bureau and the Wyoming Farm Bureau, Young Farmers and Ranchers Farm and Ranch Conference in Deadwood, South Dakota. You guys will be there on January 22nd. It's a Saturday in the afternoon, and we're going to be doing a live podcast recording with Steve Kenyon talking about cover crops and soil health and some of those things. Uh, so could you guys just talk to us a little bit about what you're going to be doing there and then also uh, kind of talk to us a little bit about the value of conferences and some of the ones that you're excited about coming up? So we're going to we're gonna hit a lot about just practical uses of cover crops and get down to the nitty-gritty of the how-tos. And, and I think in some of these podcasts, we get to hear the stories of people's livelihoods and how they've gone about using some annual forages and cover crops. And, and we're going to just get down to... Um, you know, start to finish some of the management practices and tactics of building these blends and then the best use practices is of how to fit them in rotations and, um, you know, as far as field work and herbicide and, and um, fertilizer and, and all that stuff. And then, you know, go into some of the grazing and harvesting methods of those blends too. So that's, that's what we're going to hit on with cover crops. Uh, as far as other um, shows and you know, there's some trade shows. There's some conferences that we're going to go to. South Dakota Soil Health Coalition's coming up with their conference um, rate uh, right before that. I believe yeah, that's in that, a, that, that. I think that one's January. Tuesday and Wednesday, and then and yeah. then the Farm Bureau Young Farmers and Ranchers Conference is that weekend. Yep, is Friday and Saturday. Yep. Yeah, so we'll be at that one as well. Um, Millwarren's going to have a booth there, and then uh, I'm I'm going to be presenting uh, with some cover crop stuff forge stuff as, as well that one um we've got uh, ncba coming up i guess that we're going to take part in head down to houston. Uh, houston texas and go to that one so i guess the the winter is full of opportunities to you know learn and dig in on some of this stuff and network is, is yeah. probably the biggest opportunity black for hill producer. stock show yeah we'll be there as well Good. Yeah, we've got yes, a busy season one. coming up. Yeah. Um, but we <laughs> want to encourage lot. anybody and everybody that's listening to this, and even those who aren't, uh, to to join us for one of those events, and especially the that Farm Bureau, Young Farmer Rancher, anybody kind of 35-ish and under, right, Clay? Is that kind of the... Yeah, and, and that's it used to be called the Young Farmers and Ranchers Conference, and we changed it to Farm and Ranch Conference because it's for anybody. Oh. But we okay. we do we are really targeting um, we are really targeting all generations, especially with this one because we've got Elaine Phrase coming in on um, on Friday afternoon from two to six. She's going to do a succession planning workshop. So uh, basically, w- the way we asked her to format this is we want we want both generations or all three generations in some cases of of the operation to be in the room and to walk away with the framework for a plan to to start transitioning the ranch to the next generation so um, we really want all generations to be there and I, I think it's an immense opportunity she is uh, she is passionate she is good she's been doing this really her whole adult life uh, all of her career path decisions. Uh, and trajectory has set her up to really, I think, be an expert in this in this regard. And so, um, I'm excited to have her there on Friday morning or Friday afternoon from two to six. Then Steve Kenyon's going to be there uh, in on Saturday morning uh, from uh, nine to noon. I don't know if I'll ever do a working cows conference. Um, I've been involved in that uh, on some level in other places, and I know how much work goes into those things. Uh, but this is this probably is going to be as close as you'll ever get to a working cows conference, as far as yeah. uh, the the speakers that'll be there. Um, a lot of past guests of the Working Cows podcast will be there. Luke and Natalie Kavoric will be there from Nebraska. Um, uh, and that wasn't anything I did. It was just the way it worked out that they were guests and then they're they're coming along too. She's going to talk about social media uh, and, and using that in partnerships with that. Uh, Ken Olson's going to be there. He's a, a fantastic ruminant nutritionist for SDSU Extension. Uh, he's going to be there. Justin Tupper from U.S. Cattlemen's is going to be there for a discussion uh, about uh, marketing and some of those things. He also runs St. Ange Livestock. And and so uh, it's I'm really excited about it. It's going to be great. Um, it's always fun to partner with another state. We're partnering with Wyoming Farm Bureau, Young Farmers and Ranchers to put this on as well. But I'm passionate. I'm making personal phone calls. I just made two of them this morning, inviting people who are kind of in that uh, transition season in their ranch and saying, 
come come to this conference bring uh bring the generations that are going to be impacted by this trans transition and start working on a plan and to that end because we're so passionate about seeing that happen we've actually opened up an, another tip ticketing option where people can register just for that friday evening event it's forty dollars per participant and it includes the meal uh so really you can't you cannot beat that opportunity and and uh not taking anything away from the rest of the conference but if if people were only able to make it for one one part of it i would encourage them to strongly consider that as an option no, it sounds like it's going to be a great event, and I'm looking forward to having you know an interactive time uh, with Steve Kenyon, you know, Justin, yourself, and and I uh, going through a lot of different scenarios and questionings. It's going to be it's going to be great. And boy, as you get older, what do they say? The days go slow and the years go fast. Uh, boy, when you start your year off, if you don't get out a little bit in January, or February, I guarantee you, you're yeah. going to be back busy <laughs> by March again. And it is if you going don't to go not now. stop till Christmas. Yeah. And so uh, make the plans to get out there. Deadwood really, truly is one of those places that actually is is nice to visit 12 months out of the year. That's uh, true. It's be fun. Winter in Deadwood is actually kind of nice. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, yep. I grew up, I grew up, my dad telling me all the time that we lived in the banana belt of South Dakota because we lived just on the northern edge of the Black Hills. And I looked at him a lot of times when I was wading through knee deep, deep snow and told him he was crazy. Uh, but then I moved to the plains of South Dakota and this, and the Black Hills of South Dakota is a banana belt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is for yeah. sure. <laughs> it melts. Yep. Yeah. So no, we look forward to it. Seeing uh, at different places on the uh, the winter road circuit, and definitely out in Deadwood uh, for the event. Please, please join us out there. Yeah, Good. very much. And I thank thank you guys and and Millborn Seeds for your partnership on that event too. It's been been a lot of fun to see it come together. And I, I, like I said, it, there's a it's it's going to be good. Going to be a, real, a lot of fun. So, w- what are some other uh, some other best of 2021 as far as educational opportunities or um, or books or resources that you guys have consumed over over this year that have really uh, that you think people would get a lot of value uh, out of boy i uh i've become a big fan of appalachia country music in 2021 <laughs> <laughs> i don't know that's a side note it has nothing to do with no, the podcast or working give me give me a couple like of give me a couple like, of names so like shane smith and the saints like where these guys been like they have a uh, album out like Geronimo album from 2015 never heard of him now it's like my favorite thing uh there's all kinds of them uh uh Cole Mert uh, uh Cole Cheney uh Mercy is a good album uh I'd go back to Dan Jamerson uh or Nick Jamerson sorry I'd have to think of him now I wasn't planning on bringing this up but uh <laughs> go to my <laughs> iTunes like my whole uh genre has kind of shifted uh there's some absolutely fantastic music coming out of appalachia right now uh blackberry smoke they're a little more popular ian no uh, arlo mckinley kind of an ohio flavor uh, would sierra farrell Justin fit that Wells. would sierra farrell sierra farrell fit that description as well i don't know that's probably one to add i don't even yeah. know that. and and she sounds like like we're going way back like kitty wells if you've ever heard any kitty oh. wells stuff from the 40s she sounds just like her it's crazy Okay. So very cool. Huh. I like it a lot. No, there's a there's a lot of great music that's not on the radio. That's that was yeah, my uh, assumption from because I don't think I've listened to the radio outside of WNAX for SDSU football games or a little bit of markets in a long time. And so not to divert people away from local radio, <laughs> but uh, man, there's some good stuff out there. Uh, books, I yeah, we'll get into some books later on, but I don't want to want to get too heavy into reading lists. Uh, I guess uh, I would say Michael Schellenberger is a guy I've been reading right now. Mm. Um, Apocalypse Never is a book that came out a few years ago about kind of, you know, just just general concerns with uh, with energy in the future and things like that. That's that's been kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, it's been a it's been an interesting year as we've launched our podcast. Uh, just consuming lots of other podcasts as well, looking around, see what people are doing, hearing things. Uh, it's been a great way to challenge. If they say, you know, they always say the best way to learn is to teach, and this is, you know, kind of akin to that, right? You see, you want to make sure that you're providing unique content when you're when you're on the air, and so it's been a, a fun year to challenge ourselves from from an input standpoint of what's going on in the world and what we're exposed to. So that's it's kind of my takeaway, Justin. Yeah, and what a realization of how much effort it takes. So kudos to you, Clay, for doing 222 episodes. I think we did. What did we do? Maybe 10. Yeah, we're trying to do one a month and, and that is a challenge. And so to get a million uh, subscribers or views or hits, I should say, on, on your 
channel is is absolutely phenomenal. It takes so much consistency and to stay that uh, dedicated to perf- you know getting a podcast put on all the time is 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 a feat. So congratulations to you. This is just it's it's something. Yeah, thank you guys. I appreciate that very much. Um, yeah, I think being first, and I'm this is not, taking nothing away from people who were doing their podcast before mine, but being first is always good. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and for sure. you know, being first to market is always good. Uh, and then I think the other thing is just that consistency. Just keep releasing yep. episodes yep. as much as you can every week. There's been place times where I had more than more than seven days, sometimes up to fifteen days between episodes released. But I always tried to release two that week and get get back on schedule. And I've averaged more than an episode a week for for four years now. And so um, that's been, I think a big part of it. And I've just really, uh, enjoyed it. It's been, it's been the greatest continuing education experience for me personally, just getting to ask. I, I don't think I'm really stretching it to say some of the best minds in this industry, uh, yeah. what makes them tick, how they're doing things on their operation and really drill down to a granular level at, um, you know, the, the actual practices. I like these high level discussions, but, um, I, I really thrive on those, those granular level discussions about, you know, let's drill down on a specific practice and talk about that for 45 minutes to an hour. (laughs) So it's just been a, it's been good for me. I've been, yeah, it's been, it's been the primary way I have expanded my knowledge of this industry over the last four years for sure. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. And I think we're going to continue to see that trend as people learn. It's learning from others that have done it before you. And that's, yeah, that's a great, great way to learn. Great trend to follow. All right, Clay. Well, uh, we'll have a chance to talk again in a, in a month and, 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 uh, hopefully we'll have a lot more new things to share and, and get, uh, the opinions and, and perspective of Steve, Steve Kenyon, a yeah. Canadian rancher. So, uh, looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, thank you guys again for this opportunity and thanks for thanks for uh, jumping in uh, with us on this Farm and Ranch Conference. I, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, I know it's going to be a great time. So I encourage people to, to head over to sdfarm.info and uh, follow the links there to get registered. It'll be in the show notes page as well for today, uh, workingcows.net slash 222. And wherever you guys post it, I'm sure we can we can arrange to get some links there too. So thank you guys. We'll do it. Hope to see everybody who is able to attend in January.